so-called fast fashion is all the rage these days. But maybe it's time to slow things down. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. heard a lot about the miracle of fast fashion, how apparel is getting to the store faster and staying there for much shorter periods of time. The whole concept of seasons has been turned upside down. Nowadays, a particular garment might be sold in stores for only a few weeks before making way for something else. And by the way, a lot of this fast-moving merchandise is dirt cheap. But we're paying a price for this state of affairs in the form of low wages for factory workers, especially overseas, and damage to the environment. My guest today is Maxine Beda, CEO of Zadie, a company that is taking a different approach to selling clothing. Zadie recently undertook a year-long research program called The New Standard, in which it identified the issues that have made apparel the second most polluting industry in the world today. We're going to hear about how the company is spearheading a whole new approach to the fashion business, one that meets the needs of consumers while creating supply chains that respect human rights and the environment. So here is my conversation with Maxine Beda. Maxine Beda, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We all know about slow food. Now we apparently have slow fashion. Can you explain to me what that term means? Sure. So slow fashion, much like slow food, as you had said, is about taking into consideration every detail of production, really starting with the farm. It's having an appreciation for quality over quantity, um, and it's building a story back with our producers that we once had but is now lost. In other words, 180 degrees opposite of the direction that the fashion industry is going in otherwise, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So an interesting challenge to talk about how you're going to achieve that turnaround. But let's start by talking about this uh, year-long research project that uh, you've undertaken at Zadie, as I understand, called the New Standard. Could you explain what that is? Sure. So we got started with the new standard and just to back up, you know, we were trying to do the right thing. And I think that's very typical of our generation. We think we can accomplish great things if we put our minds to it. And we went about trying to create uh, clothing that was made in a decent way. And so it was just started with us and we wanted to find what, what does that actually mean? And as we were exploring that concept, we really uncovered both the big challenges facing the fashion industry, how disconnected it is, how retailers are not aware where their production or certainly where their raw materials are coming from. Also, the environmental impact that this is all having with apparel now being the second most polluting industry in the world. And we put all of those things together, really first wanting to find, well, what is the sort of lead certified factories that we could use or what is the equivalent in the apparel space and noticing that 
that didn't exist. And then realizing that this information, the research that is out there on really just what are the issues in the apparel industry, how does it connect with the broader discussions about climate change and human development, and decided nobody's doing this. We were internally developing this tool for ourselves just to a way to figure out what the right thing to do was. And we decided to share it, share the research that we've managed to pull together. Tell me a little bit about Zadie itself. How old is the company? So we launched our first product, our private label product, last November. And we launched our first collection just this past month. And we launched the company uh, about two years ago. And we started first uh, developing our carrying third-party product, telling the story behind each product that we carried, and then ventured into our own production uh, to really get down to the farm in terms of figuring out where our clothing comes from. So this determination to do that was built into the origin of the company then? Yes. So the origin of the company was really an integration of content and commerce. It was the story behind our products, uh, building that emotional connection uh, that our generation and really our society right now is seeking, whether they're seeking that in their food or they're seeking some sort of balance in their yoga or meditation practice. We all want to have that connection and have meaning in our things. And so that was really the the heart of the company right at the get-go. What's your background? Were you in previous uh, companies in the fashion industry prior to this? Uh, I was a, a lawyer, actually. Okay, interesting. So <laughs> this is... This is your first venture in into the into the apparel and fashion business. Yeah, so I I got started first doing corporate law and then human rights law, and then from there I went to found a nonprofit organization, actually working with artisans throughout the developing world, help them helping them revive their craft tradition, and that led me to create Zadie, uh, along with my co-founder Soraya, to uh, build stories and connection between all of our products, no matter where they come from. But it sounds like you had to learn pretty quickly just the actual fundamentals of the apparel business. You didn't know any of that before, right? Uh, certainly, yeah. It's been a, a steep learning curve, but I think it's probably because some of us, although now, of course, the team includes industry uh, veterans as well, had a fresh perspective. There wasn't a, this is how it's been done and this is how it's going to be. And I think that that allowed us to think a little bit differently in terms of what production can look like. So where are you now with the new standard? Again, it appears to be it's a year-long research project. Is it still underway? So I think it's always ongoing. You know, as information comes out, we're going to continue to add to it if there's any feedback. But the reason why we published all of it, including the sources, is we want it to continue to develop and be a living, breathing document, a living, breathing tool. And it's the standard that we've applied into our own production in terms of creating clothing that has high quality standards that is designed for uh, longevity uh, and that is sustainable really from, from the farm all the way through to final production. What have you learned so far? Like what have you discovered are some of the issues or the major steps in fashion production that are commonly overlooked? I think, you know, starting even with material choice, it was shocking for me to learn that uh, you know, the sharp increase in the use of polyester, even in the past couple of years. Cotton is no longer king. Polyester is now in over half of our clothing that we wear. It's a dramatic shift away from natural materials to synthetic materials. 
And if you compare that trend also with the comparison in terms of the carbon footprint of each of those fibers in, in their production, it's pretty shocking. And then it's quick to understand why apparel is now the second most polluting industry because it's based off of synthetic fibers, which have a very high carbon footprint. But polyester and synthetics have been part of the apparel business for decades. Uh, is there something about it now that's causing the problem to get worse, or is it just you're saying it's time to wake up and attend to it? If you look at the trend curve, which is actually uh, included in the new standard of polyester has been around for quite some time, but it's that it's uh, so ubiquitous today. That's really the, the big challenge. And that's really the biggest challenge in the industry is just how much is created. We throw away 70 pounds of clothing, each one of us, every year. That is a, a sharp contrast to even 20 years ago. You know, we our consumption of clothing has increased 400% over just 30 years ago. It's really just this pace combined with this move towards synthetic material that's causing these major challenges. But cotton has its problems as well, does it not? What about the use of child labor and forced labor in Uzbekistan, for instance, in order to harvest cotton? Uh, certainly. Uh, cotton, um, natural materials, but co cotton in particular has its challenges. And we address those as well. So the cotton that we use is organic cotton. We also, within the new standards, show the impact that organic pesticide-free um, raw material can have even on a carbon footprint basis. So we're really trying to cross-cut all of those issues from avoiding the child labor of the cotton industry in Uzbekistan to avoiding pesticide use in our cotton production as well. But it's a complex supply chain. What challenges have you faced in tracing back the complete provenance of your products all the way back to the fields and including the mills and the processing that all of this stuff goes through before it even gets to a factory? Have you found it possible to get visibility of every single step in your supply chain? Well, we do it very differently, and I think that that's how we're able to get this visibility. So we don't start with a factory and then say, please, will you tell us, you know, where are you getting the material and then trying to get them to re reveal that information and going down the supply chain. We start the other way around. So we work, you know, with taking just our first sweater as the example. It's the one um, that I'm wearing right now, so it's the easiest one to, to discuss. The point zero one, we started at the ranch and then we worked our way upstream versus, uh, you know, trying to go the other direction. What we have found is the, really the way to build transparency so we could then track our wool that came from Oregon that was then washed in South Carolina uh, that was then spun and dyed in Pennsylvania. And we actually created a whole video of our actual sweater getting made through that entire supply chain and then getting it um, outside of Los Angeles. What about when a producer or a seller of apparel is much larger than Zadie? It's got to be more difficult at that point, more complex supply chains, more volume, more sourcing points. I would imagine they would find it a little bit more difficult than you have can they? Uh, do you expect them to be able to meet that challenge as well? A couple of things on that. I think one, it's not a matter of scale. You know, as we've developed this product, we are partnering with facilities that can scale our company, and so we're partnering with places that have great standards and that can also do high volume. What I would say about many brands out there right now is that they are 
stuck in systems where they don't have visibility. And so, yes, that's going to be a challenge for them to come to grips with. But we're also seeing a consumer that is beginning to shift in their interest. They want to know where their products come from. They want to know that they're doing the right thing. So eventually brands are going to have to get on board in order to stay relevant. Certainly a lot of major brands have given lip service to this concept of ensuring workers' rights in their factories. And some of them have, or a lot of them have, very detailed supplier codes of conduct to police that kind of thing. But then we turn around and we see something like the Rana Plaza factory disaster in Mm -hmm. Bangladesh, in which we find apparel being made that the brand didn't even know was being produced at that location. It was subcontracted and sub-subcontracted out through four or five different levels. So how then do you believe we can address this problem of the multiple tiers of supply chain and prevent that from happening? Yes, so the subcontracting is really the biggest issue at the cut and sew stage just because of how easy it is to transfer a sewing machine, essentially. And it is, I think it is, in terms of the ethical side of this equation, it is the biggest issue is the subcontracting because you can audit a, a factory left, right, and center, but if you're not even auditing the factory that is actually producing your goods, you're auditing the wrong thing. Which is, as you pointed out, what the Rana, what Rana Plaza was. It was a subcontracted facility. It's a big issue. I think the important thing for the industry is to recognize uh, and be transparent about that issue. Auditing is not going to be the only thing that solves it. it. It's already proven to not be sufficient. We do all of our manufacturing in terms of cut and sew and knitting in facilities in the United States that we can go and visit. That's because of where we are as a company. I think. There are other safeguards that can be put in place that seem pretty simple. Um, one of them is there are nonprofit organizations that empower workers with mobile texting that they can send anonymous texts if there are violations that are happening in their factories. There are other things that they can do pretty that seem pretty simple, like understanding how many sewing machines are at a particular facility. And given the uh, units ordered and the time frame, whether that's a facility that can feasibly even be producing those quantities, it sounds incredibly basic, but I think if the brands actually went through that step, they could avoid some of these major problems. Is this, uh, is this system that you just described of, of texting or sending over mobile phones reports of violations, is that in wide use today? It's beginning to be in use. I wouldn't say it's in wide use, but I think it's one of those, a safeguard that can be put in place and an interesting use of technology in this space to ensure at least compliance as a start. Because I I could see where that would be a difficult thing to pull off. A, A lot of these employees in these factories are watched over like hawks by management. And to go over and, you know, pick up a phone and start texting or something, I would think that that would be something that, first of all, would be grounds for termination on the part of management. And secondly, how would they manage to do that in an extreme, in an environment where they really are under constant surveillance? What's interesting, I think, when you visit these factories is just how ubiquitous cell phones are. And so that there are ways that the companies that are in nonprofit organizations that are launching this type of product Um, have found that it has been very successful. But I think we need to just, you know, that is just one example of creative ways. I think the the second thing, and this comes from the car industry, Toyota in particular, is 
the fashion industry, the apparel industry has been caught in this race to the bottom, always just trying to find the cheapest suppliers. And as a result, there has been very little innovation in the space in terms of making a product more effectively, more efficiently, um, instead of just trying to cut down labor costs. If you look at a company like Toyota, they're not hunters, they're farmers with their sourcing partners. And they see their suppliers as partners of theirs and want to get feedback in terms of that process, make it more of an efficient one. And I think even that kind of partnership principle where a factory can feel comfortable to say, these are the issues, how can we work through them together, can be another major sea change to avoid a lot of the catastrophes that we've seen in the industry. It seems that the apparel industry would would appear to be, on the manufacturing side, one that is less susceptible to automation than high-tech production and automotive production, stuff like that. You still need – it still seems to come down to a lot of people at sewing machines. Is that the case? I mean, it's going to continue to be, in your opinion, a very labor-intensive industry even as technology improves? Certainly, I think because, as you said, it's you know there are new products that come out every season that are coming out every week. It, it doesn't lend itself to total automation, and because of that, it will continue to be require a human hand to make product. But there are other ways to make a system more efficient in terms of even allocating labor accurately based on orders that are coming in. You know, a lot of this is still done, even in the biggest factories on a whiteboard or, you know, maximally in Excel. So there's a lot more efficiency gains that can happen if brands start uh, partnering in even the medium term with factories. You, you, know, you call it a race to the bottom as all of these companies are looking to save as much money as they can. And as a result, we see some of these abuses. Though, um, to turn around and to start instituting some of the measures that you are talking about or we're talking about here, they're going to cost a certain amount of money. I mean, it's, it's, it's money that you're going to want to spend in order to protect the rights of, hum- uh, of, of the human workers in the chain, but it's going to affect the price tag on your merchandise, is it not? I mean, does a Zadie sweater cost more, even pennies more, more, but you go to the trouble of ensuring that your supply chain is, is responsible? Uh, yes. That's the very simple answer of it. It does cost more. We get savings in that we're partnering with our factories. We get savings because we do our manufacturing domestically and therefore we don't have excess inventory that kind of plagued the rest of the apparel industry. So yes, our labor costs are significantly higher because we're guaranteeing a living wage for the, the people that are making um, the skilled people that are making our clothing. But what we have found is when you pay people well, they're making a great product. And ultimately, you know, clothing can be either a commodity or it's something very special. And it's those things uh, that make the product very special that people want to attach themselves. And clothing is very much about what you are expressing to the world and people want to have that connection. So they're willing to pay for a higher quality product at the end of the day. Okay, there's my question. Are they? Are consumers willing to pay more for environmentally responsible and human rights responsible merchandise, or are they going to continue to scramble for the incredibly cheap clothing they can get now at some of these uh, mall-type outlets that don't practice what, what you do? I think if you take page out of history and kind of look back 10 years at comparing where McDonald's and Chipotle were, 
where McDonald's was still very much on the rise, but Chipotle was entering the scene. I think people were asking that very same question, would you pay more to have a higher quality product even that's fast, than even that is fast food? And now we can see today that there's Chipotle is a very dynamic company. People are flocking to their chains because they want to eat delicious food and they want to know that um, that's coming from a good place. And that's, you know, if you kind of fast forward to what's happening in the fashion industry, sure, there are still people flocking to fast fashion stores and those chains are opening up new stores every single day. But there's beginning to be a, a deep shift happening in society about wanting to be more mindful. And so there is a fast-growing consumer base that uh, is switching away from fast fashion and wanting to simplify their lives. One of the best-selling books right now is actually uh, a book about simplifying your life, including simplifying your closet, because people are just so overwhelmed now with the amount of stuff that they have uh, that they're looking to pare down. And that's a a massive shift that is taking place in society right now. Well, on the other hand, uh, this whole fast fashion thing where something doesn't stay on the shelves, a collection or a season might be just a matter of a few weeks where you buy something and you better buy as many of it as you want at that time because if you come back a week later, there aren't going to be any more. It'll be a whole different thing. That is a big deal right now, and it seems like consumers are flocking to that business model. So do you realistically think that we can put the brakes on fast fashion? I do. I think it's not th – those things don't happen overnight. Just like, you know, I grew up – my parents were both doctors, but I ate a lot of McDonald's. Um, that's not something that you can afford better. You're, you're avoiding fast food, and that's the type of shift. Yeah, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, but we're seeing – interest. We're seeing people incredibly excited about slow fashion and that slow way of life from all different corners. So uh, yeah, it certainly certainly is happening and, and will continue to happen. Okay, so it's slow in terms of consuming and, and, and from the consumer side, but on the business side, you are, of course, a businesswoman and you are required to show a certain uh, return on investment and profit mm -hmm. to yourself and your shareholders. Tell me what you think Zadie's going to look like in 10 years from now. Are you looking to get bigger yourself, or are you going to somehow manage growth in, in line with what we were talking about here? No, I think, you know, for us to be successful, it's to scale the company. I think it's a very interesting time, and, uh, you know, you rightly point out, right now the brands that I grew up with, that seemed like they would always be there. They, you know, I grew up in Minnesota the land of the first mall and, and at one time the biggest mall in, um, in the world. And those brands I always thought would be there. And now all of those brands universally are having a real struggle um, because they're just not resonating with consumers at this stage. So right now there is kind of a major bifurcation where that those brands that I grew up with, either people are going to fast fashion or they're going to slow fashion. But, you know, the apparel industry is a massive industry. It's either a $1 or $2 trillion industry, depending on what expert you're asking. So there's still a huge portion of, of the market that is making the shift to slow fashion and allowing us to be a sustainable company and allow us to continue to grow. This has been such a fascinating discussion to take a completely different view on the apparel industry that we have up to this point, going from fast to slow. Uh, Maxine Beda, 
I want to thank you so much for spending time with us to talk about Zadie and your philosophy of, of slow, slow fashion and responsibility in supply chains, apparel and other otherwise. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Maxine Beda of Zadie, talking about the concept of slow fashion. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.